This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. My guest this morning is Rachel Harris. Rachel Harris is a researcher and retired psychotherapist and the author of a wonderful new book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Anxiety, PTSD, and Anxiety. This book could also have been subtitled Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Ayahuasca But Were Afraid to Ask and includes many stories from her ayahuasca research participants, as well as many of her own stories. Rachel Harris, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love the music. Well, I found that last night in honor of this show. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) And I have to say, I really loved the book. Oh, I'm so glad. It was such a pleasure to read. There was so much information, and it really parallels a lot of the shows that I've been doing over the last several months, even though most of it had nothing to do with ayahuasca or even psychedelics, although there were a few shows that were on those topics. But but they were all totally interrelated. What's the interrelation you're describing? Um, The psychological and and psycho-spiritual aspects of it. Yes, that's very important to me. It's more than just a book about ayahuasca. The point of the book is how does ayahuasca help with psycho-spiritual growth and development and blossoming. But that's what I'm really interested in. Me too. And that's why I enjoyed this book so much. And I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. So just to begin with, because not everybody knows what it is, what is ayahuasca? 
Well, it is one of the most powerful psychedelics, and it's a concoction that's like a tea, and it's from the Amazon basin. The indigenous people have used it evidently for centuries, and they use two plants from the jungle, and they boil them for a day or so, and then they drink it. And for them, it's a medicine, or it's a help for divination, giving them access to information they would have no other way of gaining, such as where should we hunt, where are the animals we want to hunt for food, and also how to cast a spell over a loved one or get a new girlfriend or boyfriend. I mean, it's used in a variety of different ways. But Westerners who have been going to the jungle, so to speak, for the last couple of decades, they're really seekers. They've been people who are searching for psychological healing, spiritual development. So the medicine is being used in a different way culturally as it enters the West. And so that's what I was mostly interested in. And you did a research study about that. I did. I wanted to know how Westerners were benefiting from the medicine. You know, I'm a psychotherapist, a psychologist. I wanted to know what happens after. I wasn't interested so much in the fireworks and all the visionary excitement and that sort of thing. I wanted to know how are you different? How are you changed? How is your life different? And so the research was all focused on those questions. So how did you first encounter ayahuasca? Well, you know, that's become a very difficult question for me to answer because it puts me in that terrible position of do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) And that's because I just sort of dumbly stumbled into it. And my real recommendation for people is that they select very carefully where they're going to go and they have good references and they know a lot what they're getting into. And by contrast, I just sort of fell into it. I was looking for a winter vacation. I was living in New Jersey, and I wanted to go to a beach. And so I found this retreat center in Costa Rica that was on the Pacific Ocean. And a few days before I was leaving, the organizer called me and said, do you want to participate in the ceremonies? And I said, what ceremonies? I had no idea. And she explained what the ceremonies were, and I happened to have a book that I bought years before because I liked the cover. It was one of those purchases never opened it. And so I read up on ayahuasca and said, sure, I'll do the ceremonies. And, you know, the piece that's missing in my bio is that I was an Esalen Residential Fellow in 1968. This is in Big Sur, California. And, you know, it was a magical mystery tour time, actually, now that we're thinking about it. And so I had somewhat of a history, a very careful history of using psychedelics in a meditative way. So I lived at Esalen for a couple of years after the six-month residential program. So it was really during that California heyday. And so when this opportunity arose, my daughter was grown. You know, it was an opportunity for me to kind of come full circle in my own life. And I was very open. So what happened to your life as a result of that experience? Well, you know, what I asked for in that first ceremony, and I have to tell you, just within 20 to 30 minutes of that ceremony, I remember, you know, I went into it kind of telling myself, don't be afraid, you have experience, you understand these realms, you'll be fine. I mean, you're out in the jungle, you know, there's no telephone, no internet, no roads, you know, there's no backup system. And so I'm trying to calm myself down. And in the first half hour, so I think I could feel this medicine moving through my intestines, snaking through my body. 
And I thought, oh, my God, this is much more powerful than anything I've experienced before. And I was really humbled. And what I had asked for was an opportunity to go back to my experience when my father was dying. And that was about six, eight years before I sat in this ceremony. And I had him at home with me under hospice care. And so those last 48 hours before he passed over, they're very intense. And I had had an out-of-body experience at that time where I sort of traveled with him as he was leaving this world. And it scared me. And I brought myself back down into my body as soon as I realized what was happening. I was pretty shaken. And then I felt like, well, I really missed something, but I was afraid that if I had continued, I would have died with him, which I wasn't ready to do. And so I wanted to go back to that experience and complete it. And, you know, you can have all the intentions in the world, but you don't always get what you want. I mean, you can say, this is what I'd like to learn in this ceremony, and, you know, you never know what you're going to get. But I actually got what I asked for, and I went back to that experience, and in the ceremony, I was able to shoot up out of my body and go up into the cosmos, into the vast black void, which was ecstatic. And I just sort of disappeared into that for I don't know how long. And so it was that experience of oneness and then of great expansive beauty. I can't say I saw sparkling stars in the distance, but I knew I was out in those realms where there were points of light. Eventually, I came back down into my body. I have no idea how. And I just felt so grateful. I had had the opportunity in the ceremony to relive my last conversation with my father, which is, you know, it's that final goodbye when you say I love you. And so it was wonderful for me psychologically to have that moment with him again and then to have this ecstatic experience spiritually. So, you know, when I talk about What happens with ayahuasca is it works sometimes on a purely psychological level, sometimes purely on a cosmic level, and sometimes both. And this was a a good example of both things happening. And is this level of experience common for people who drink ayahuasca? You know, I can't even say there's a common theme. I mean, the range of experience is so broad But I mean that level of experience, that level of intensity. For sure. It's very intense. And some people sometimes have ecstatic experiences, and some people have real working psychological experiences where they deal with family issues or a current relationship, and they get insight into their behavior and relationships that they, well, let me just say one interviewee, said, I never would have raised this issue in therapy because I didn't think it was a problem. But seeing my interaction with my family member during an ayahuasca ceremony, I realized the problem. So that's a really interesting statement because she wouldn't have even raised it in therapy. She wouldn't have asked for help. She didn't even know it was a problem until she saw her behavior. So the ayahuasca gave her an even deeper insight than she had previously had. Yeah, she didn't have any insight before. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ayahuasca really brought it to her attention. I mean, she watched herself as if she were watching a TV show, and she was just horrified by her behavior. And worse than that, she said, basically, 
oh my God, I'm behaving just like my mother. <laughs> I mean, if that isn't enough to uh, motivate you to change your behavior. <laughs> yeah, that'll usually do it. That'll do it. <laughs> so that's quite a range of experiences, whether it's real nitty-gritty psychological work or these ecstatic spiritual experiences. I really like to say there is no typical, but it does cover a wide range. And would you say that from your research and your own experience that most ayahuasca experiences are positive in that sense? Well, you know, I got such positive report that, you know, as any psychologist, I began to be suspicious. Where's the shadow? And so I did a study where I had 81 people complete a questionnaire, and then I interviewed about another 50. And so I began asking around for more interviews with people who had had a bad trip, for instance. That's, I was looking for the other side. There was so much positive change happening. I wanted to know what happened on the other side of it. And I interviewed maybe a dozen people with so-called bad trips. But at the end of the interview, they would say something like, it was really difficult, it was really hard, and I learned so much, I would do it again. And you yourself had a bad trip. And I learned so much. And you learned, I can right. hardly say I would do it again, but I guess I would. Mm -hmm. I've heard from other people who have had very difficult experiences with ayahuasca or iboga. They've had even more difficult experiences with iboga. Really? Who say that they certainly wouldn't do it again, but they wouldn't trade anything for the experience. Because Isn't of that interesting? Yeah. yeah. These are very powerful medicines, and they're very psychologically confrontational. And I think... You know, we each have our own definition of a bad trip. So mm -hmm. I think what happens is we get stuck in our own negative loops in some way. Or we get stuck in an old trauma. I mean, one person talked about how every time she went into a ceremony, she would relive a traumatic event. So there was no movement out of it. And that's a real call for therapy. Mm. I, I mean, that's a point where she should stop the ceremonies and get some therapeutic intervention to help her move through it. But it was as if she was stuck, like a, you know, the old-fashioned records, the needle gets stuck in a groove. So I, I think bad trips are very particular to the person. We each have our own hell. Right. We've all heard lots mm -hmm. of bad trips with LSD. It sounds as if ayahuasca is more intelligent than LSD. And there's a spirit involved with ayahuasca that isn't necessarily there with LSD. It's different in that respect. I hardly even know how to talk about this, but yes, that is exactly the difference. And there is a sense of being worked with in a conscious way with ayahuasca. There have been times when I have felt almost collaborative with the spirit of ayahuasca, with grandmother ayahuasca, even during the ceremony itself. There was one particular one where I did two nights in a row, and I cried the whole first night. That's six hours of crying. I'm really not that big a crier, so this was unusual for me. And the second night, I couldn't believe it. I picked up right where I left off and had another six hours of crying. And that could be called a bad trip, but it was so important. And it was this sense of the spirit of ayahuasca, the consciousness, the plant spirit being with me, really respecting some of the trauma from my childhood and kind of acknowledging, well, this is why you're not doing better in this respect. So it was an affirmation in a very painful way, 
you know, affirmation is used in the positive psychology sense of, you know, I'm lovable, an affirmation like that. No, this was an affirmation of you experience serious trauma, and that's why you're having trouble in these ways. And it really felt like a psychological consult from another therapist. And I felt really vindicated after two nights of crying. I mean, I was not signing up for a third night, but I felt, yes, this is true about me. And there was a level of acceptance of my own history and what it meant in my life and the seriousness of it. You write that Grandmother Ayahuasca has an intentionality and a sentience. Sentience, yeah. But what's the intentionality part of it? How, how would you characterize that? Well, you know, I think you recently interviewed Dennis McKenna, and they basically have said, I mean, Terrence is gone now, but Dennis basically maintains this position, that Grandmother Ayahuasca, that this plant spirit is intentionally moving into the West into the developed countries to kind of wake us up to the ecological environmental disasters, to connect us to nature so we begin to take better care of the planet. I mean, obviously, we need this very much. So that's how he interprets it. I mean, he, he's a, a botanist, so he sees it in environmental terms. And I think I see it less focused. I, that's certainly one of the things that happens. That is one of the patterns that people report is they feel more connected to nature, and some people become more environmentally involved, more sensitive to what's needed to help the planet. And I'm, as a psychotherapist, I see things more in terms of personal healing. And so I think there is so much suffering in the world that this is another avenue for healing, and I'm very grateful for the movement of this plant, basically out of the jungle into the West, and there's a movement within the ayahuasca community to sustain the agriculture of growing these plants because shaman in the jungle have said, I mean, here's a quote that I've heard from one shaman. I used to be able to walk just a few minutes into the jungle and harvest the plants. Now I have to walk five hours to find the plants I want. So the need in the West is so great that we're decimating the plants that grow wild. So some of them are being sustainably grown to replace the ones that are being used. I mean, that's quite a statement that so many people are using this medicine, even though it's still basically underground, that we're making a dent in the jungle. Yeah, and ayahuasca is considered a Schedule One drug. Well, you know, the plant itself is not, and so you can order the plants over the Internet. Once you mix them and the DMT is then available in the tea, it's the DMT that's Schedule 1. And, of course, marijuana is still Schedule 1, which is considered dangerous with no medical benefit. So you can see our culture is in an irrational stance when it comes to mind-altering psychedelic medicines, including marijuana and MDMA. They clearly have therapeutic value, and we are recognizing it. I mean, I think half the states have medical marijuana, but we haven't changed the way we schedule them. We're ambivalent about these medicines as a culture. Yeah, extremely ambivalent. Yeah. can even call it schizophrenic about it because yeah, pretty much. <laughs> there seems to be a very strong desire within part of humanity to find ways to heal itself individually and collectively. And to me... My sense is that ayahuasca, 
grandmother ayahuasca is responding to that call. That's a wonderful way to put it. And at the same time, there are parts of humanity that are trying to make sure that that's not available, using whatever legal channels and legislative channels they can to prevent that from happening. So it's like a paradoxical meeting of the death wish and the movement towards life. Oh, that's a great way to put it. It's quite something. I mean, there, I think there was one family who had to move from one state to Colorado because they needed access to medical marijuana for their child who was having frequent seizures and none of the traditional medicines weren't working and actually marijuana oil decreased the seizures. So, you know, as a culture, our heart has to go out to these people where there's a medicine available. How can we not make it available in a responsible way? And I I hope there's movement in that direction. It seems like there is because there is recognition of ayahuasca's benefits for severe depression, treatment-resistant depression, addiction, PTSD, and anxiety, including death and dying anxiety. Yeah, there are themes in what people say, even though there's a wide range of experiences. And one of the themes is the term ayahuasca is vine of the dead, vine of the spirits. And one of the themes that people report is, I'm no longer afraid of dying. There's a sense that there's almost a, certainly my experience going into the cosmos at the time of my dad's death felt like a preparatory journey that would prepare me for my own death. I mean, we'll see how this goes, but, you know, one one friend of mine says, well, it's the final exam. You know, we don't want to be too confident about our process. Right. But there is a sense that this medicine does help prepare people and gives them such clear experiences of communication with the other side that they become less afraid of dying. Well, from your experience, what is your sense of the other side? You know, one of the things that was interesting for me is I had my first love and dearest friend from growing up kill himself in his early 30s. So for me, that's almost 40 years ago. I just turned 70. And I don't know that people ever recover from a suicide. It's such a difficult thing to accept. And since I've been in ceremonies, which has been about 12 years now, I feel that my relationship with my old friend has grown. Now, I'm talking about someone who's been dead all these years, and yet I feel my relationship more alive with him, and I feel more connected. And I don't know what that means. I don't have a coherent cosmology that accepts that. I'm a Western agnostic. I don't know how to talk about these things. I mean, even when my dad was on his deathbed, I talked to him about this. He was very concrete and businesslike. He was like, well, when you're dead, you're dead. This is the end. And here's this completely different experience I'm having. But the sense of a relationship growing and deepening when the person has been dead all that time is remarkable to me. So the connections to the other side, they're, you know, they're windows that open up, portals that open up and allow for the connection to grow. So it's very difficult to explain this to someone who hasn't experienced it, but it feels as real as my relationship with my neighbors or my friends who I see every week. It's alive. The relationship has become alive again. An interactive relationship. 
Well, I don't hear from him in a sense of talking to me. But you're feeling his presence yes through your heart i would assume yes that's correct well that that makes total sense to me you know our culture at large does not support these kinds of experiences and i we don't even talk about them or if people are afraid to talk about them or somebody might call them crazy or say well that's just wish fulfillment i mean a therapist could say you're just imagining that And, you know, I'm at the stage in my own life where I'll talk about anything. (laughs) And I think our culture really has to open up and talk about these unusual experiences so that they become not so unusual. It's not that everybody has to believe in them or have them, but we have to be open to the possibility of these experiences so people feel more acceptance and support for experiences that are really important. Mm-hmm. And you return many times in your book to your own personal agnostic and ontological crisis. And you, you can hear it's still ongoing. <laughs> yeah, regarding the sense of how real is this. And, right. and, and at one point you say the question of whether it's real or not is not as relevant as the effects that it has in your life and how it changes your life. Yes, and that's originally from William James, who's basically the father of psychology. He was at Harvard in the early 1900s and a philosopher and developed the whole concept of psychology. And he basically laid that out, that a religious conversion experience, it's not about judging the experience, it's what are the fruits in your life. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's what I was asking in my research. How is your life different? Mm-hmm. And there have been other very well-known people who have had mystical experiences on those levels, including Carl Jung and even J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, we treat these experiences as if they're unique, and certainly with those two examples, what followed was very unique. But I think it was both Gallup Poll and Pew Research asked just a random sampling of Americans, have you had a religious or spiritual experience? Half the people say yes. Now, whether that's a full mystical experience or not, I don't know. But they're saying, yes, I had a spiritual experience that changed my life, was very important in my life. People are having these experiences, but there's very little way to talk about them in our culture. But I couldn't believe that half the people said yes. But certainly Tolkien, Jung, these are the big stories because of what followed. And Jung really says that his whole therapeutic philosophy and practice came out of his own mystical experience. As it always seems to, I mean, this is not something that you make up. No. I mean, most of the people I know have also had mystical experiences. I've had them throughout my life. They began in early childhood for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they opened up even further in my early psychedelic experimenting uh-huh. days, which was in the 70s. Uh-huh. And I haven't done those substances since. But I'm curious about ayahuasca. I'm not feeling that strongly drawn to it at this point, but I don't know. Well, let me just say, it's a pretty miserable experience. It's not going to be a recreational drug because, to put it mildly, you need to be very close to a bathroom. <laughs> there's uh, purging from both ends, so there's vomiting and diarrhea And the ceremonies are generally done in the dark, and it's like an inner meditation for half the night. It lasts about six hours. And it doesn't open you up to other people. It opens you up to your own inner world. 
And because it's intense and unpredictable, I don't ever say, oh, everybody should do this or, oh, try it, it's great. You really have to be called in some way. And I think the important thing is that you've had those experiences in your life. An enormous number of scientists have had those childhood experiences, usually in nature. And there was one psychologist who was collecting first-person reports from scientists who had had mystical experiences as a child. So I think it changes the way you see the world, the way you are in the world, the way you relate to your own life. And ayahuasca happens to be one experience, but I think what's most important is the openness to these experiences and treating them as part of what's normal for the human condition. It's like an initiation. It is very much. I mean, Jung certainly wrote about it that way. So at this point in our society, there's no support, there's no recognition or acknowledgement of this level of experience or the importance of it. And as a result, people who have these experiences prior to hearing anybody else's stories of them, they tend to bury them, thinking that they're irrelevant or perhaps even there's something wrong with them. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I talk in my book about one client I had, and she saw me for at least a year and a half before she began to tell me about what she called her meditative experiences, the highly spontaneously spiritual person. And it took her a year and a half to trust me, to talk to me about that stuff. She was talking to me about, you know, lots of other things going on in her life, a disastrous divorce and other things that you would think would be hard to talk about. But it took her a year and a half to trust me that I wouldn't label her or judge her in a negative way. And because these experiences are so otherworldly and contrary to everything we've learned, most people probably need help integrate it with the rest of their lives, with the rest of their worldview and to help expand their worldview in a, in a more holistic sense rather than carrying this polarized tension. You know, I have one friend who talked about her Kundalini experience when she was in her early 20s, and she said she was driving with a girlfriend to the mall to buy makeup. <laughs> you wonder, how do these things happen? <laughs> and some music came on the radio, and she had a full-blown explosion of light inside her head. I mean, just up her spine, inside her head, all the way up through the roof of the car. And I asked her, this is someone I know well and love, and I asked her, you know, how long did it take you to integrate that? And she's just retiring, so she's in her late 60s. And she looked at me and laughed. She said, I'm still working on it. (laughs) So it changed her whole life in a wonderful way, but it did take her years to sort of find her way in life. There were no more trips to the mall to buy makeup. (laughs) She changed her focus. And there was a research study on something they call quantum experience. And so they interviewed people who had reported these kinds of experiences of one sort or another. Not everybody had this full-blown kundalini experience. And what was interesting is they asked them to prioritize their values. And their values really changed. You know, before they were more interested in success and financial security and things like that. And afterward, they were more interested in the value of relationships and authenticity. Their values really shifted. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Rachel Harris. She's the author of a wonderful new book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. And we have another caller on the line. Welcome, you're on the air. What I am interested in is which parts, now that 
uh, neuroscientists made such progress, which parts of the brain are turned on, and especially which parts of the brain are turned off for such experiences. I think that's the question of the century. And the person to look up on YouTube or just Google, because he has plenty of research coming out, is Robin Carhart Harris. He's a young, meaning mid-30s, British neuroscientist, and he's studying mostly psilocybin and LSD and putting people in functional MRI machines while they're under the influence. He's very prolific. He has lots of research articles published every year, and he gives these wonderful talks. So he's the person to look up and then to look forward to in the decades to come for what he'll find. But the immediate finding is that the default mode network is quieting. And the default mode network in the brain is not an anatomical structure. It's a neurological network that goes through the brain. And this is the default mode. This is when you're not focusing on anything, when you're driving or walking. or It's 60% of our time during the day. I mean, when we're not focused, we can just be sort of drifting. And this is that inner conversation that supports who we think we are. It supports our neurosis as well as our personality structure. It, it includes the critic and our to-do lists. It includes just the everyday kind of talking we do to ourselves. And what they find is that that network is quieted under the influence of these psychedelic drugs. And it's the quieting of that inner chatter that allows for other parts of the brain to light up and to open up to other kinds of experiences. That's the most interesting research that I think is just beginning. It's interesting how certain parts of the brain or certain networks of the brain create these loops, these endless loops, these kind of ruts in the brain that, mm -hmm. that most people spend their entire lives living by. Right, and trying to distract themselves from, but distraction doesn't really work all that well. It just it gives you a, a brief break. And often people become addicted to those distractions. Right. Well, you know, it's very humbling to sit with someone in psychotherapy. Someone who's been suffering with lifelong depression, where the meds, the SSRIs and uh, other antidepressants sort of just help them survive. But what they've got on is this constant stream of ruminations of you're not good enough, you did that wrong, you'll never get anywhere, you're hopeless. I mean, it's not just an inner critic. It's more than just that inner critical voice. It's a whole running program that supports the neurotic structure of the personality. And it's very difficult to get objectivity about that. In other words, how do I get an objective view of my own personality structure and how I'm organized and put together, how I work? I used to do workshops and I would work with people to get that objective distance so that they could get an overview of their life. They could see how their early experiences in life and their family of origin led to who they became in the world and how they deal with themselves and others. So it was being able to step outside themselves and look at how they've learned to survive psychologically. And I have to say that ayahuasca does a very good therapeutic job of that. So much so that, I mean, certainly there are people who say, well, my depression lifted, I don't hear my inner ruminating voice so much anymore. So there were what I called miracle cures where the depression just lifted. But a good number of people also said something like, 
You know, I still have those moods, but I'm more distant. I'm not totally identified with them. I have more of an objective distance. I know this too shall end. I don't feed it. I don't make it worse. And that's therapeutically very sophisticated. I mean, people can work in therapy a long time to learn how to get that kind of distance from their own moods so that they're not just totally enveloped by mood. And that's part of what they learn with ayahuasca ceremonies. And also meditation practice works towards a similar, creating a more spacious relationship with ourselves within space so that we're not lost in our own self-identification. Spaciousness, yeah. yeah. And they find with meditators, when they, again, put them under a functional MRI machine, that their default mode network is quieter. In other words, it's getting less oxygen. That's literally what the, the machine shows. Mm -hmm. And also, with all the psychedelics, they quiet the default mode network, but they're also neurogenic. So new neuronal connections are being born. You know, it's not like we have a certain number of brain cells and then they're never regenerated. We have found, I think, in the last decade or two that we are regenerating nerve cells and new connections are being made, even for those of us who are older. And so there's this opportunity to quiet the old patterns and create new ones. Well, new experience creates new neurons. Yes, exactly. Well, we didn't know that 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the psychedelic experiences, including ayahuasca, are very much novel new experiences. But there was an old spiritual leader from the 60s who used to say, you know, shave with your non-dominant hand, walk backwards. He was just saying, break up your most basic unconscious patterns. And that also increases neurogenesis and the possibility of new patterns being developed. This is one of the reasons people love to travel is it opens them up to all these new experiences. One thing that occurred to me while reading your book, and also for, for years now, is that psychedelic experience seems to soften the hard-wired structure of the brain. It makes it easier to rewire things, to literally rewire the brain. And that's where I think post-psychedelic, post-ayahuasca integration work could really be tremendously helpful. Yeah, there was some research that showed that psychedelic experience increased openness. It's a personality variable, openness. And it's one of the five personality variables that are, theoretically, we believe these were consistent throughout life. And so one of the researchers at Hopkins, this is with the psilocybin study, she intuitively felt, just as you're describing, that there's an increased softening and opening. And so she measured psychological openness and found that, yes, it increases after psilocybin. And so this is a remarkable finding, something that we thought was consistent throughout life actually can be changed. I mean, you know, psychology has to rethink how we think about the personality. And the softening is a softening of identification, a reduction, sort of a, a lowering of defensiveness, and an increased openness that comes. And this is what I call the golden days and weeks and months after an ayahuasca ceremony. There's a real opportunity to kind of rewire yourself, to become conscious about your own programming, because there is this inner fluidity and movement that's possible that as a result of the ceremony, it doesn't last forever. This is the way that ayahuasca and other psychedelics can be like a rocket boost to personal development and growth. 
But this is more than just integration the couple of days following, which is important in that transition from ceremonial space back to, you know, life in the office or whatever your job is or, you know, ongoing life. This is a real therapeutic process that could unfold over weeks and months and allow for real healing to occur. Are there people who do that kind of work who are familiar with the ayahuasca experience? You know, we need more. We need more therapists who have ayahuasca experience or even just psychedelic experiences. From the very beginning of the research, I was just reading something from Albert Hoffman where he was one of the original researchers in the early 1950s. And he just blatantly laid it out and said, you know, the therapist has to experience LSD. They can't work therapeutically with someone who's using LSD in a therapeutic context without knowing that territory. They have to really know it themselves. And I've hedged a little bit on this, kind of saying, you know, if there are other ways they know that territory, that can be fine. But certainly the best is to have someone who's in their own relationship with Grandmother Ayahuasca working with somebody after a ceremony. And when I've interviewed people, oftentimes I would feel like there are three people present. That's how strong the presence of Grandmother Ayahuasca was for me. I felt like I actually had a co-therapist working with a person. And do other research study participants experience similar things with Grandmother Ayahuasca? The finding that really threw me into my ontological shock was that three-quarters of 81 people, so that's about 59 people, reported that they had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. For some reason, I felt it wasn't a big deal for me to hear a voice telling me do the research. But when I learned that so many other people were hearing a voice or communing and dreaming about grandmother ayahuasca or meditating and feeling her presence, that they felt that they were being guided by her, And these were all Westerners and highly educated Westerners. It basically blew my mind is the best way for me to say it. I just could not believe it. But this is part of the ayahuasca experience. What kind of experiences, what kind of relationships were people having with Grandmother Ayahuasca? How was that manifesting in people's lives? Well, in a huge range of ways. I mean, people would turn to her for support. And there was one young woman who didn't have a very good sense of herself. She didn't feel good about herself. She had low self-esteem is the best way to put it. And I had seen her in ceremonies and saw her over a couple of years, and I saw her changing. And I asked her if she'd had therapy. Now, this is going against my stance of how therapy can be helpful, but, but people also grow just going to ceremonies even without therapy, but I think more can happen with therapy. But she didn't have therapy. And she said she just felt that she was loved and accepted unconditionally by the spirit of ayahuasca, by her own relationship with Grandmother Ayahuasca. And she was blossoming, really, for the first time in her life. She felt good about herself, that she was okay just the way she was. It was this increased, what in Buddhist circles they call radical self-acceptance, an increase in I'm okay just as I am, not in that sense of I have permission to behave badly, but a sense of a ground of being that's accepting. And that was her experience with Grandmother Ayahuasca. And she wasn't necessarily hearing words or messages. It was more a loving presence that was always available to her. 
she could meditate and relax into that loving presence. So that's quite a therapeutic experience. Mm, I would say so. I would say that's something that many people are looking for. And over time, it had this huge healing impact on this young woman. And then, you know, as someone who's worked in therapy for 35 years, when there's a shift like that in a young woman, it has all kinds of ramifications in her life. She'll choose a different life partner because she feels loved than if she didn't feel loved. She'll trust herself more in any business risks that she takes or professional risks. She'll have more confidence in herself. I mean, it's just a remarkable change in a young person how their life will flow differently when they've healed that sense of self-acceptance, a really deep sense of themselves. I'm speaking with Rachel Harris, author of Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety, here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. The subconscious, the unconscious is constantly trying to interfere and help uh, our survival. And uh, what you're talking about is a primal state, a state where the executive functions of the mind have been quieted, have been turned off. So when you're talking about rationalizing the experiences you have under ayahuasca, is it uh, something you can possibly do in this primal state, or are you talking about revisiting the primal states in a more executive function of your brain? Do you understand my question? Yeah. The executive function is the neocortex, and I'm trying to think of what the functional MRI data shows about what happens in the neocortex, and I'm just not remembering. Robin Carhart-Harris talks about the lowering of the executive function, which makes people more vulnerable to magical thinking. Absolutely. Which might be part of what you're calling the primal state. Right, and this primal state is perhaps a more primitive state, which puts us in touch with our instinctive thinking rather than our intellectual understanding and rational evolutionary brain. Well, another thing that the executive function does is it filters out what our programming considers to be unnecessary information, which means that it filters out about 99% or, or a lot more of the information that's actually available to us. Exactly, exactly. But so does this more primal state induced by these psychedelics. They also put you on a more quiet level, on a level where you don't have access to your rational mind, where your, quote, irrational mind is free to play. Yes, and how wonderful. Okay. <laughs> and it's, it's possible that's you. part of the openness factor. Yes, Thank exactly. You. Yeah, well, he's raising issues that we don't really know a lot about yet, and this opens up the whole realm of brain research that will go on as the research gets more sophisticated with psychedelics, I mean, what they've really started is just kind of proving that in careful settings, psychedelics can be safe and people can have mystical experiences. But as the research progresses, they will be asking these kinds of questions. I'm always just a little hesitant to be too polarized about rational or irrational. I can't imagine what the neurological data will eventually reveal for us, but it's not just as simple as 
right or left hemisphere or rational or primitive thinking. It's more complicated, but we don't yet quite know how. So I want us just to remain open in how we talk about how we understand the brain, because there's, there's more for us to learn. And you talk about the importance of integrating our transrational experiences with our rational thinking. Yeah, and there's really very little cultural support for that. And maybe that's part of what this caller was talking about with the primitive brain, that it's transrational, which is a better term than non-rational. I think so, um, because yeah. it's, instead of polarizing it, because rational thinking, like logic, is a tool. And it can be abused. It can shut out a whole range of possible experience. And I think we all need to learn to skillfully use all of our tools appropriately. Right. It can be limiting. So we don't even know that we're limiting. That's the real danger. Exactly. Because we have this other extremely powerful tool of the imagination, which has been largely dismissed by Western culture. Right. And it's highly valued in other systems of thinking. For instance, Henri Carbin talks about the imaginal realm. He's a French philosopher from the early 1900s. And poets talk about this, the phrases, the mountain behind the mountain, this intuitive sense of other levels of reality behind or infused within our material world. And, you know, the physicists are beginning to talk in their own way about different dimensions. And not that any of them understand it completely, but certainly they're talking about other dimensions of reality. And it gets way out there in a very similar way. And so it's not just imaginary in the sense that children have imaginary friends or, you know, I imagine such and such, but it's the imaginal realm. It's the intuitive grasp of other realities beyond what we know in the material world alone. And being able to tune into the essential level of things as well. Right. And I lived in Princeton. I I raised my daughter basically in Princeton. So I had access to the public lectures at the Institute for Study. And when the physicists talked to a general population about these other realms, certainly their work was mathematical. They could prove these new concepts with high-level mathematics. But they would talk about it in very intuitive ways. And you could sense that they were also grasping and intuiting other worlds that are present in our world, that it wasn't just theoretical. And this is why some of Einstein's quotes sound so mystical and and wonderful to us. It's this intuitive sensing of a world beyond this world. And that relates to this notion of the physical world emerging from the non-material world. Right, or just plain other dimensions that we don't even know about. And this opens us up to how much mystery there is in the human condition and our experience in this world. And for me, with ayahuasca, there's still so many mysteries involved with this medicine. And part of my own process, and I mean, besides my difficulty as an agnostic who's now talking about plant spirits, is to feel more comfortable in this liminal space between worlds and to appreciate the mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important thing that I think most of humanity needs to learn to develop a more healthy, holistic relationship, being able to embrace mystery along with rational thinking and with understanding. 
Yeah. And what's always so fascinating about stories of spiritual teachers when they can do something that seems magical. You know, Ram Das talks about when he met his spiritual teacher in India, that this man knew things about him, knew about his arrival. I mean, sort of extrasensory information. They had access to other sources of knowledge. This is a common thing that's talked about in the psychedelic community, that people experience what they call downloads. And sometimes that's a noetic sense of knowing that is so vast that they don't have words for it the next day. They can't put it into words. But it somehow changes their philosophical stance in the world, their way of being. And that's another one of the themes that comes out is that people have much more of a sense of a universal unity, a sense of being part of a whole, and that everything is interrelated. And this is part of the perennial philosophy that's kind of at the mystic core of all the world religions. And so there's a direct experience of another way of being in the world. And we have another caller on the line. Welcome. Morning, Tonya. This is Iraq calling in from another world. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. I uh, appreciate the conversation, and we're walking down to plant potatoes, and but we were listening on the car ride in, and I was thinking about, I have a friend who's indigenous to the Peruvian Amazon, and he was recently here, and he was talking about the complexity and struggle of his culture trying to survive, and a lot of that being challenged by globalization and by a lot of what feeds the toxic parts of Western culture in terms of consumer culture, and... He was also talking about how important ayahuasca is in his culture and ceremonies and rites of passage and how it's a really big deal to be able to partake in that ceremony in his culture. And he was juxtaposing that with the ways that it's showing up in Western culture as sort of a consumer thing or or maybe more deep as you're talking about today. You know, it's a therapeutic tool, but I wondered if you could talk about some of the issues facing the traditional cultures where this medicine comes from, and thanks a lot. Thank you. It's a, a great question, and I think he was very kind and polite, but I think I am guilty of cultural appropriation because my perspective is so Western and talking about how to use ayahuasca medicine for therapeutic benefit. That's a very much more limited worldview, and in, in many ways it's a distortion and I don't know how to not be a Western psychotherapist. So it's a real personal limitation on my part. One of the things I do really like to talk about is, well, first of all, ayahuasca, even though it's a, considered a Schedule One drug in our culture, in Peru and in Brazil, it's a national treasure. That already tells you this is such a different way of holding the medicine conceptually. And the ceremonies in the indigenous settings are holistic events. There's singing, often there's artwork that comes out of the ceremonies, out of the visions, woven into cloth. And the shaman is an integral part of the ceremony. In the United States, we don't have enough well-trained shaman available. So we have now leaders, people who have maybe a few or even a half a dozen years of experience with the medicine. They're beginning to lead their own groups. And partly because there's money involved, there's always power involved in leadership. But these people do not necessarily have the years or even decades of training 
that are present in the indigenous communities. And the indigenous communities themselves, the shamans, are disappointed by their own children and grandchildren who are not following in their path. I happen to know an American shaman who is the godson of a very elderly shaman in the jungle. And the shaman's own biological children and grandchildren are not trained. But this American has grown up with this godfather, and he is fully trained. So there is this sense of cultural change happening in the indigenous communities. And then any tradition that's brought into our culture, our culture is so powerful that we change it. We've even turned Buddhism into mindfulness meditation for medical purposes or therapeutic help. And we ignore the whole philosophical context of Buddhism. And, you know, we make it available at yoga studios and medical schools, and it is just the training of the mindfulness alone without all that other stuff. But all that other stuff is the cultural context, and we have a way of dividing it. I had someone I interviewed a few months ago, and he said he was in a group where the leader, you know, was like a DJ. And I was a little horrified <laughs> because the songs that the shamans sing are an essential part of the healing, and that's not what a DJ does. And, but I managed to keep my mouth shut. And then this man began talking about the healing that he's experienced. And I realized, well, he really is benefiting from this medicine even though it's not the complete ritual, he's still benefiting. And I'm afraid this is what we do in our culture. We take pieces of other cultures and make them our own. And certainly this is what we've done with yoga. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love for you to talk more about the shamanic worldview and also the shaman's role in the ceremony, including and perhaps especially the songs that they sing, the Icaros. Right. You know, the best book for that is an American-born medical doctor has been trained as a shaman over the last six years or so, and I'm sure he'll have more maturing to go as a shaman. But his book, Fellowship of the River, this is Joe Tatur, T-A-T-U-R, Fellowship of the River, he talks about finding in his own process of becoming a shaman, opening himself up to being able to sing to people. So in the ceremony, in this tradition, he sits across from someone and sings the Icaros, which are sometimes composed in the moment. They sometimes channel right through him for this particular person, for this particular moment. And he kind of sings the darkness out of their energy field, and that that's how the healing works. So, you know, if you have a DJ leading a ceremony, you're missing this very individual, sophisticated healing that happens through sound. And he writes the most about it. There was some controversy in anthropological writings. One anthropologist said, no, the singing, the patterns of the song, it's not that important. Somebody else said, yes, the singing works with the designs that people see, and it helps align and clear the energy fields. And because I had been working with an authentic shaman and I had experienced this direct singing directly to me that the sound went right into my body, I could feel the energy designs moving through my body, I knew this was an important part of the healing. And so even though there was academic controversy, I sided on my own experience and then a couple years later met Joe who talks about his own training and how he's learned that the Icaros are the medicine 
In some traditions in indigenous tribes, the patients, the people don't drink, only the shaman drinks ayahuasca. And there are people who say, you know, if you know the song of the plant, you don't have to drink the plant. So there are so many other levels happening. But I think the sentence, one of the sentences certainly in the book that I'm most proud of is the Icaros are the medicine. The patterns are the medicine. And that's the extent of my understanding. And yet I know in our culture we're not getting the whole ceremony because it's just not that available. And as much as I want therapy to follow up ayahuasca ceremonies because that's my perspective, I also don't want the wholeness of the ceremonies to be lost in our culture. Yeah, it's hard being part of our Western culture, which tends to divide up things, take pieces, but everything we do filters through who we are. And I was very humbled to hear this one man talking about his ceremony with the DJ and that he was being healed still on an issue that had been a problem his whole life, and he was mid-60s. Well, I suspect that Grandmother Ayahuasca is very adaptable to all of these changing and new conditions. Yes, I, think I suspect you're I right. That's so. That. Yeah, I suspect you're right. Sorry for coming back, but it is a fascinating conversation. I first of all, I want to say that primitive healing is not something to put down. In pre-scientific societies, we had other ways of dealing with things that we've lost in our society. So I'm most respectful for other methods of healing and all of those psychedelic experiences that ayahuasca produces. There's another thing I would like to bring up. You write about Stephen Berner writing about how plants change their chemical composition to accommodate the need or intention of the user. Yeah, and I forget how well documented that is. <laughs> I think he, he referenced it, but I didn't get to the original research. So I, that's one of those amazing pieces of information that I, I find almost unbelievable. I don't know. It is a hard thing for the Western rational mind to wrap its head around, but it makes sense to me that any intelligent around us will pick up and relate to us in relation to our own clarity. Well, you know, I think that's ultimately, besides the therapeutic healing and all that Western view, there is this part of what I've learned from the shaman I work with and just the ceremonies themselves is the importance of the relational aspect of communicating with the non-human world around us, the plants and animals. And this opens up all kinds of possibilities. So I just had an experience of standing with the shaman at the ocean's edge, and it was perfectly natural for him to sing a song of gratitude to the ocean. Now, I've stood at that place by the ocean, you know, hundreds of times, and it never occurred to me to sing a song of gratitude to the ocean. So I'm learning this relational nature of how we exist as part of a much greater inner relationship with the universe. Yes, and I'm afraid we're going to have to end on that note. We're out of time, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Tonya. Thank you so much for your interview. Be well, and we'll be back in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Rachel Harris. She's the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, P.
PTSD and anxiety. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week.